Testing. Please stand with me in honor of the word of God as I read from Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Keely. Now we'll dismiss the kids. We're reading through the Bible uh, together as a church. In our Bible reading this week, we're still reading through Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. And so this sermon and what I'm preaching through is through areas that we are reading uh, together. And so this passage comes from Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And I've entitled this, The Servant. There's a lot of talk about the servant when the Isaiah begins to shift after... How many of you want, want, want to get to know Isaiah? So, sounds like a pretty cool guy. A lot of people talk about when they get to heaven like, you know, I want to see... Paul and talk to him about things and you know the the apostles and some of the prophets were were really amazing called men of God weren't they Isaiah is one of them Isaiah is a book that is quoted in the New Testament both by Jesus more than any other prophet and so right and kind of equally he does uh, quote from the Psalms pretty close to equally but also just the whole New Testament Isaiah is the most a quoted prophet in the New Testament. So 
pretty, pretty big guy to meet, right? If you meet him, there, and Jesus uh, just spoke of him. And so I hope in the service today that you'll get kind of a touch of Isaiah's heart. Even though it's God's inspired word through the prophet, God allows uh, through all the writers a part of their personality to come through. As we'll get into Jeremiah, you know, he's known as the weeping prophet. You kind of see his. He comes from a whole different background, uh, Jeremiah does, than from Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is in the, the courts and in the uh, just uh, from from good family, you'd say, just, you know, seemingly knows it all, um, smart kind of upbringing, has, has everything in his favor, and yet he has an encounter with the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah dies. And when he gets into his presence, this song that we sang this morning, he sees, he sees the cherubim and the seraphim he's in the throne room he's in heaven he sees the holiness of god and so he has a personal encounter with uh, the lord that changes his life in the direction he's called prophet of god and and he begins writing and speaking of what he has seen and known of the lord and chapters 1 through 39 he's warning the people of their sin to all these kings Besides King Uzziah, the kings that follow after him, his, his prophetical line, when you look at those kings, could be, you know, 52, 60, 60 some years long. He was prophesying to these different kings in their ministry. So he had a long ministry, and he prophesied that judgment was coming, that the people needed to turn from their sin, and he did not have much success. And after he died, they were led into captivity by Babylon. They were taken over, which was what Isaiah was warning them of. But chapter 40 begins this change. In 40 through the end of Isaiah, there's this whole section of Isaiah in which he is prophesying in, in, in the beginning here about the hope. Even there's this whole devastation. Jerusalem is destroyed. The, their temple is destroyed. There's nothing. Even as they're returning, there's nothing to return to. What hope do they have as a people? What, do they, what, what even hope do they have in their God? Their God's been looking, looks like, has been obliterated. His temple's been obliterated. They as a people representing God have been obliterated. It's a real hopeless situation, but Isaiah is speaking hope into this, this, this situation of these returning exiles, and he begins to speak through all of these chapters about this servant this mysterious servant, this hope in this servant. And besides our text today, there's about four uh, songs that people pick out from Isaiah, poems, songs that he wrote about this servant. One of them is in Isaiah 42. You might say it kind of starts there, verses 1 through 4. He says, Behold my servant. It's really the title of my sermon today. Behold my servant. Who is he? What's he like? When's he going to come? What's, what's our hope? Who is he, Isaiah? He says, <clears throat> God is saying, Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Whew. So this servant begins here in this first song of Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold my servant. And by having his spirit put upon him, that would reference us back to Isaiah chapter 11. Come on, you studiers of Isaiah, you theologians out there, immediately that pops into your mind, right? Isaiah chapter 11, it's the prophecy of, 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 of God, of, of his Messiah coming, this king coming, who God would uh, spring forth out of the ground from the stump of Jesse after it's cut down. It looks like there's no hope, but out of the stump of Jesse would spring forth this root and the spirit of God would be upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of knowledge. And this person with the spirit of God is going to bring God's kingdom. There's this great hope. So this reference of this behold my servants would reference us back to that because this servant that God wants us to behold, he's put his spirit upon him. And we leap back to Isaiah 11. We leap back to these hope-filled prophecies of Isaiah. The second servant song is found in Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. 
The servant of the Lord here mentioned in verse 3 it says, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Like through you I will be glorified. And there's a lot of talk about who this Israel is. Who is he saying is Israel? And theologians talk about it and discuss about it. And of course rabbis are still trying to read this and figure it out today. Uh, So definitely it looks like here you are my servant Israel. He's calling an individual Israel. That he will be glorified through this individual, his servant. And he says through this servant in verse 4 and verse 5, he goes on to say, in you, this servant that he's calling Israel, that he's formed from the womb to be his servant, what's the servant supposed to do? To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel, so he's mentioned Israel again, might be gathered to him. Israel gathered to Israel. Figure that out. A little confounded? So, this servant will be Israel, and he will gather Israel. So it's an individual that we see here that Isaiah is prophesying about. Saying he formed him from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and to gather Israel back to him. And he'll be honored uh, in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 6, of the close of this song, he says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I don't know if you can feel that hope, but that's hope in this servant, the servant. Who is this servant? He's going to regather. He's Israel, and he's going to regather Israel. The tribes of Jacob. And in song, Servant Song 3, in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 7, in verse 5 it says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. This servant will not be rebellious. This servant will not turn back. And in verse 6 it says, I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Who is this servant that would do that? It looks like he's being, he's not being rebellious. He's not turning back. He's following the will of the Lord perfectly. And yet look, look at him in the next verse. Who is this servant that could follow the Lord fully? Not ever turn backward. Press on with him. My servant, says the Lord. And yet, why would he be treated this way? They literally don't know. They still read today and don't know. They're still flipped by this. They look and they go, what? Is he not rebellious? Then why is he getting struck on the back? Why are they pulling out his beard? Why are they spitting on him and disgracing him? Nobody that would be obedient to the Lord could be treated like that. Who is this servant? And we get to our text today, the servant song. and It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I always started it in Isaiah 53, but the servant actually starts in Isaiah 52. It begins in verse 13. This whole passage. Today you're here for one of my favorite passages of Scripture of all time. It's a passage that... When I was five years old, I walked in to my dad sitting on a Saturday morning with the big family Bible open and the sun rising up, coming in through our big picture window and shining on him and on the Bible. And I'm peeking around the corner at five years old. And I'm watching him write in it. He's writing our family like history and it set out on the coffee table, opened, you know, where you could look through it, had big pictures in it of the stories, and I was already learning to flip through and see those pictures and tell the stories, and, and I went up to my dad, and I was curious about what was happening in our family. Our family was um, getting turned upside down by someone named Jesus. I had no idea who that was. I saw my brothers who were older than me and, 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 and angry, fist-fighting, the stronger wins, gets his way, battle like the world is, 
and I saw them hugging each other, saying, I forgive you. And I said to my dad, I walked in there, and I waited for him to acknowledge me, and I stood there, and he finished writing what he was. He said, yes, Bobby, what is it? And I said, Dad, I have some questions. And he said, well, go ahead. What are they? And I said, and I'd been thinking about this for some time now as a little kid. And I looked right at him. I said, who is this Jesus? And what is all this love stuff going around in our family? And you know what he showed me? Because he had the Bible open there, kind of right in the middle. Isaiah 53. And he read it to me. Mainly verses 4 through 6, the meat of this passage that we'll get to. And he said, God fulfilled his promise and set this person, that's who Jesus is. And you can have him real in your life. All you got to do is just pray and invite him in. I said, I want that. And I did right there beside him. And I got to know Isaiah. I got to know his word. I got to know God's word. I got to know who Isaiah is. And he's never left me from that day, from everything that I've gone through. And, and you know life can throw some things at you. And he's still with me to this day. So this passage, we get into Isaiah 52. It begins in verse 13. Behold my servant. You guys want to behold him today? Behold, look at him, feel him, sense him, reach out and grab him, touch him, behold him. Who is this servant? One first thing that comes out is he shall act wisely. That means he will succeed at his task. He will act wisely. He will be high and lifted up. We know that Isaiah, what I've already shared with you from Isaiah 6, he saw him. That's the first thing Isaiah said in Isaiah 6. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Isaiah's already seen him high and lifted up. He knows this servant. He's seen it. He knows what he's talking about. He's speaking of what he saw. And that's what John, in the Gospel of John, actually quotes. Can you believe this? This is one of the places, like I said, there's a lot of these in the New Testament. This is John 12, verse 41. John quotes of what's happening in the New Testament. He says that the word of Isaiah might be fulfilled. He quotes two verses from Isaiah. One of them is Isaiah 53, 1. And then he So I will try to continue with the hand mic. John 12, 41 said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. I want you, it's hard to spend enough time to meditate on that. John, the apostle, is saying after he quotes what, what's happening in Jesus' life and the, who has believed this report, and he said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw it. He was in there. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. He knew this servant would act wisely and succeed at what he accomplished. He saw him glorified. He saw him high and lifted up. Highly exalted. This servant that was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This servant that was highly exalted and given the name above every other name, this servant that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess that this servant is Lord. Amen? Whew. Isaiah saw that. Isaiah 52, 14 through 15 goes on to say, As many as were astonished, at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human symbol. Here's this flip again. And his form beyond that of children. That was a pretty good switch. Switched mics. 
form beyond that of the children of mankind. Again, you're having this scripture in Isaiah 52, 13 about this servant that acts wisely. He's high and lifted up. He's exalted. God is saying, behold my servant that does this, that acts wisely. He succeeds at everything that that I'm sending him to do. He's high and lifted up. He's exalted. And then in the next verse, how can this be? Is he high and lifted up? Is he exalted? Is he obedient? If he's obedient, he's blessed, right? But he doesn't look like he's blessed. It says he's marred beyond human semblance. And this confounds people. It confounds scholars. It confounds rabbis, theologians, scholars. What's Isaiah talking about? Who is this servant? Then it says... In verse 15, he kind of flips back after he's marred beyond recognition. How does this happen? He sprinkles many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which was, has not been told, they, that they may see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Whew. How does he do that? How does he influence? How does a guy beaten beyond recognition, you know, can't, can't tell he's, you know, his human form anymore. He's beaten to that bad, marred. And yet, he influences kings and all nations somehow? Who is this servant? Paul's going to comment on this at the end of Romans. His exposition of the gospel in Romans is the mo- one of the most profound books in the Bible. And in Romans 15, 20, uh, 21, actually, is where he quotes this verse. The end of 15b, if you want to call it the second half. For that which has not been told, then they see. Paul quotes that in Romans 15, 21. He says, as it is written. They would already know. Oh, you mean Isaiah? Yeah. Isaiah where? Isaiah 52, 15, the second part of that verse. Yeah, we know Paul. People knew their Bibles back then. But those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand who's Paul talking about here in Romans 15 20 right before that he's saying I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named lest I build upon someone else's foundation he was pleading with the Romans that he was going to come there travel there and, and stay with them and he wanted to go further west into Spain that's what it goes on to say I want to go where people have never heard of who the servant is when you say the servant I have no idea who he is. I want to go there. I want to go and proclaim Jesus where people have never heard him. Kings, nations, these Gentile nations that that the Apostle Paul was sent to. He wants the whole world to hear the good news of the gospel of who this servant is. He wants them to behold the servant and be saved. But his appearance is marred behind him. Beyond human semblance, his, he looks like he's beat down in utter defeat. What? Huh? Who is it? Who is this servant? And Isaiah begins and opens up chapter 53, uh, verses 1 through 3. And he begins to say who this servant is. Who has believed what he has heard from us? We have heard it. It also says that. Who has believed what we have heard? Any of you believe what you've heard? (laughs) Do we believe what we've heard? And if we're spreading that message to others, believe it. Who has believed it? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom? Whom has it been revealed? The arm of the Lord, this servant acting wisely. Him sending out this servant acting in action. That's what means the arm of the Lord being revealed. Him reaching out in action This hope filled is not just words anymore. It's the arm of the Lord being extended out and coming. Who's it been revealed to? Who's it hurt hurt it? Who who is he? It says he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. There'd been so much hopelessness in Israel. Their, their, Their temple destroyed, everything wiped out. And then even after that, the Lord doesn't come back and inhabit the rebuilt temple of Ezra, Nehemiah, and them. And presence never comes back they lose lineage lines they don't know there's 400 years of silence there's no word can you imagine there was no other isaiah's jeremiah's ezekiel's there was no prophets there was no more amalekites left nahums 
You know, no one, no, no one left for 400 years. There was no word coming. Silence, drought. And out of this, all of a sudden, boom! Something out of this dry ground, out of this no word from the Lord, all of a sudden something springs forth. Is it beautiful? Is it great? Does everybody just, you know, love it? And it says, well, no. What springs forth in this behold my servant, this servant, there's nothing really majestic. He's not born. He doesn't come, you know, born in, in, in king's palaces. He doesn't come with announcements of kings. He's here. He's born in a stable. He grows up in a really in poverty-stricken young couple, in a poverty-stricken town, working at a regular job. Unknown. No majesty. No form upon him that we should look at him. There was no halo. There was no long flowing hair with wind blowing and piercing blue eyes. There was no majesty outwardly that you would look at Jesus and, and, and just be at all at awe of him. There was nothing outwardly that you would desire him. So, is he this great servant? Is he going to do it? He's coming out of God. What is he going to do? Well, now you get into this hard wrench again. He's despised. He's rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That means very familiar with grief. He's, he's sad. He's a man of sorrows. Who is this? How is he going to bring us hope? How is this great servant going to restore things? Why is God sending this person? Who is he? He's not the king Messiah that we read about too. He's not that same person, right? That victorious king who defeats our enemies. A man beaten down, marred behind recognition, now despised and rejected. Who is he? Because we're not esteeming him. We don't value him. Oh, if it was truly the king, we would esteem him and value him, recognize him, but we don't. So who is he? Who is this king? And it goes in and it shows that the rejection of the servant reveals just how misguided the human mind is. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus experiences sorrow and grief of all kinds throughout his life, acquainted with grief, familiar with grief, knowing grief. And yet, what is he going to do? The scripture Isaiah opens up to us, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. This is the meat of the passage. Not that all of it isn't. (laughs) This is just the center. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Surely, surely he does. Surely he suffers. Surely he bears our sufferings. This servant, this is where you could get into the title of not just the servant, but the suffering servant. He is a suffering servant. He suffers. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So he says, but he was pierced. But, so he's bearing these things. He's a man of sorrows, but he's bearing our sorrows. But it's not because of his sin. He's being pierced for us. For our transgressions. He's being crushed. Not for, oh, he's not being disobedient. He's being crushed for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Pierced for our transgression. Why, why would that happen? Why would the servant do that? The servant of God. Sent from God. Behold, why is this hope filled? Upon him was the chastisement. He's being chastised. And it's bringing us peace. He's being wounded, but we're being healed. This contrast, but he was. It's contrasting. The servant's anguish was our fault, not his own. We can see that. He's not at fault. It's our fault. He's bearing our transgressions, our iniquities. Our sicknesses. It's profound. This is quoted by Matthew in Matthew eight seventeen. This was to feel what the prophet Isaiah spoke when he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. 
Jesus was going about healing, and Matthew was looking at that going, wow, Isaiah 53, 5. Look at this. Peter saw it, and he quoted the last part of Isaiah 53, verse 5, B, if you want to say it, the second part, and by his wounds you're healed. Peter quotes that in 1 Peter 2.24. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. It was more than just physical healings Peter's going into. By his wounds, you're healed is more than, 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 than Matthew saying it is that, going around healing of illnesses and diseases. But Peter's like, by his wounds, you're healed because he bore our sins in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin. He's saying he wants to, by his wounds, we are healed from sin. The root core of all of it, that we might die to sin and do what? Just die to sin, just die, 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 die to sin. No, live, live, live to righteousness. Live to what God, the flourishing life that God truly has for you. He is this servant. Behold, the servant, by his wounds, you have been healed. He bore our chastisement that brought us peace. Think of that. He bore the wrath of God that we might have the peace of God. He obliterated sin. And God's wrath, everything he had against sin, he took out. (coughs) And when you stand in Jesus, there's no more condemnation left for you. Think of that. He's taken it all out at the cross. Isn't that amazing? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You realize that? He's judged sin. He's put all that chastisement on on Jesus on the cross. His just and righteous wrath that was due us for our sin. Put it on him. And he looks at you and sees Jesus. Just by faith. By believing in him. By trusting that little kid. That was me. Took all the wrath towards sin. Put the chastisement of towards sin upon him. And looks at me with peace. Peace for the rest of my life. That I might live in righteousness. So it's, it's profound. And we don't get it. A lot of times I had my uh, son David call me once. And uh, this scripture that goes along with this scripture. Um, Isaiah 53, 6, this next scripture. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, and in, in, in the New Testament, Paul says this to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians five twenty one. he says, For our sake, this is as profound as Isaiah 53, 6, 2 Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, he made him to be sin. You guys hear that? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at that. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My youngest son David called me one day and he's like, have you ever read this scripture, Dad? 2 Corinthians 5.21? And he just preached it to me, man. He just preached it. And he just kept going over and over again because he's just like, no, no, Dad. You know, I don't know if you understand. Yes, son, I understand. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. He became sin for us. And, and unless you just, like, start rejoicing and going, like, you know, ecstatic over it, it to the person telling you it, it's like you don't get it. And so David just kept telling me over again. He's like, you're not excited enough about this, Dad. I don't think you get it. No, let me read it to you again. For our sake, he made him to be sin. He laid the chastisement. That's Isaiah 53, 6. He took our iniquity and played it on him. He became sin. Did you know that? In all your studies, Dad, did you, do you really know that? And I just wasn't excited enough for him. Just to say, yes, I do. It wasn't like, no, you don't know how profound this is. It's good. He made him to be no sin. Made him who knew no sin. Think of the perfect life of Jesus and he made him sin so that he might, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that glorious? Isaiah goes on. In 
in Isaiah 53, 7, and he says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What does this look like? It looks like he's going like a lamb. He's going innocent. He's submitting to the Father's will. This servant is just submitting to it. He's not complaining. He's not whining. He's just submitting to the Father's will perfectly. We sang about it today in the garden, submitting to the Father's will and saying, not my will, but yours be done. What a profound act of Jesus. What a profound act. Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Who even considered him? It ends in a question mark. It's making a statement by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. They oppressed him. They falsely accused. They judged. He took that upon himself. But who even considered him? Who even knows who the servant is? Who even knows today? Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Peter quotes this too. I mean, this perfect spotless lamb of God. Not only were his deeds pure. I mean, look at that. He had done no violence, done nothing uh, wrong physically. But even with his words, Peter says. I mean, Peter quotes this. This is Isaiah saying it. (laughs) And there was no deceit in his mouth. He never lied. He never acted falsely. It's just, it's really hard to even comprehend the, the purity of Jesus. Isaiah, I guess he saw him high and lifted up. He knew the glory of the Lord. And with Isaiah seeing the glory of the Lord, think of seeing the glory of Jesus exalted at the right hand of God, his train filling the temple, flowing out, and a seraphim coming and taking a hot coal from the altar and touching Isaiah's lips. That's it. Touch those lips. Those false words. Those lies. I'm a, I'm a man undone. Isaiah says. He's cleansed, purified. That's who Jesus, Jesus was, that man in whom there was no deceit in his mouth. Wow. And I think that boggled uh, Peter too. That's why he quotes that verse. The servant is condemned as a criminal, and yet he dies with this expensive garden tomb. He, he made, he, he's he, and a rich man in his death. We see that in Matthew 27. Most of you might know verses 57 through 60, where after Jesus dies, there's a rich man that comes. It says he's from Arimathea. His name is Joseph, and that he was a disciple of Jesus. This servant creates disciples amen servant-like disciples and what is joseph of arimathea doing he's becoming a servant-like disciple he's not only beholding the servant he's becoming like the servant and he goes and he gets jesus's body he's a rich man he has a rich tomb in a garden and he takes jesus's body and buries him there fulfilling isaiah 53 9 wraps him in a clean linen shroud, lays him in his own new, new tomb, which he had cut out in the rock, and he rolls a great stone for the interest of the tomb and went away. Matthew 27, fulfilling Isaiah. There's so many quotes out of just chapter 53 alone. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, and our closing, this, this servant, again, was crushed, and yet he was victorious. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is mind-boggling. It doesn't fit with many people's theology. But it is what the Lord did. He crushed him. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. How can the will of the Lord prosper How can he even have offspring when he's crushed and he's put to grief and he's making an offering, he's put to death for guilt? 
If he dies, that's the end, right? How can he even, after that, prolong his days? And how does he prolong his days? And how could that person ever have any offspring? See how it'd be hard to get into these prophets and in their prophetic poetry? Have you ever studied poetry? That's what this is. Sometimes it's pretty hard to understand, right? You've got to really meditate on it to dig out what's there. You know, have you ever just meditated on a song, got the lyrics, tried to study it and figure it out, what they're talking about? Because there's a lot in there. How does, who is this? It's the will of the Lord. It's his divine purpose. Acts 2.23, when Peter's preaching his first sermon after Pentecost, in Acts 2.23, he says this. He says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed Jesus. That's calling him out, isn't it? That's how he opens up his sermon. I'm surprised there was enough that stayed around to get saved after that. That's a pretty humbling, it was kind of like our confession today. You all stayed around after that. That's Peter's sermon. He's quoting um, and speaking from that it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. He's saying it was done by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Uh, In Luke 24, Jesus even says this. On the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? They just have no clue of the servant that he would suffer and then enter into his glory. And they still don't get it on the road to Emmaus, his own disciples. Jesus explains the scriptures to them. He says, all the prophets. We know he spoke from Isaiah the most. He went and explained them. Okay, Isaiah 53 along the road. Imagine walking for hours with Jesus getting taught about Isaiah 53 along the road. Did you remember the servant? I'm the servant. (laughs) You know what I mean? Jesus is the servant. That Isaiah was, and his mind starts popping open to everything. You start seeing the scripture that you've studied your whole life, and you're all of a sudden like, the servant had to suffer? Behold, And they're starting to behold the servant. And they're starting to get it. They're starting to get the gospel. In Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many and be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. So he's bearing their iniquities, but yet this, it's producing this offspring somehow. The outcome of the servant's suffering is not regret. There's not regret here. Oh, it all ended. No. But the satisfaction of obvious accomplishment. There's like, he accomplished something. What, what did he accomplish? What does the servant accomplish here? And it's that there will be a numerous number and it, that are, will be accounted righteous. Who is this and how in this numerous number? And it's that the guilty, not only just guilty Israel, but guilty all the nations, guilty the Gentile nations, guilty for our sins, who are responsible for our sin, putting him on that cross, And yet out of nothing that they have done, but because of what the servant does on their behalf, they're made righteous? Yes. (laughs) Nothing that they have done. This is the good news of the gospel. Nothing that you have done, but because of what the servant did on your behalf, you are made righteous. And Isaiah 53, 12 ends with, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he, this is the servant, shall divide the spoil with the strong, with the numerous, with the many. He'll gather them in and divide the spoil because he poured out his soul into death. What he accomplished was he won that battle. He won that war. And when you win a war, you gain all of the spoil. You know, Jesus said, I have the keys to death in Hades. He, He won it all back, and he gets with his own And he divides that spoil with them. And he says, you don't have to fear death. I conquered death. You don't have to have guilt. You don't have to have guilt. I bore your guilt for you. I bore it in my body. You don't have to bear your sin and guilt. I've taken it for you. You can meditate on this (coughs) for the rest of your life. And I have and still am the wondrous love of Jesus. And that he bore it all 
for us. What's our response to this great good news? Hallelujah! Is it, are you guys beholding the servant? You see and know the servant is the ultimate Israelite sent from God, Jesus, and that he won it all for you back, and he wants you to flourish in the resurrection life that he has for you, the righteousness for you. He doesn't want sin's destruction for your life anymore. He wants to divide the spoil with you that he won with his great victory at the cross. He went all the way to death for you. He was obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was brutally marred for you so that he could give you his righteousness, become your sin, and give you his purity, his righteousness for you. This priestly work of the servant on our behalf represents and secures our righteousness before God, our acceptance before God. You're accepted in the beloved. In Isaiah 55, here's here's the response. Will you come to this Jesus? Will you come to this victor? Will you gather in with this good news and come to Jesus? And that's what Isaiah 55 is pleading with this hope of who this servant is, the close of that song. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. You don't need money for this. Come buy and buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for which that does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. This is the wooing of the, of the servant and all that he's won. Come and divide this kind of spoil with him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 55.6 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, return to God, for he will abundantly pardon. God's invited us in. And it's not just for a one-time salvation. It's to come by and eat daily with him. Amen? Amen. Let us celebrate what this servant has accomplished for us in his body and in his shed blood together. And we'll close with a, a song as we sing and worship him. So on the bottom of this cup, you see him right there. You pull off the bottom and the piece of bread will come out. And on top will be the grape juice, the fruit of the vine. Believe it or not, this little piece of bread and this little piece of grape juice is a whole meal. It's a feast. doesn't look like much to a kid. They go, that's not very much. But Jesus, he did this and he he gave this for us to do as believers, to come together and to remember, to always remember. Man, we still remember Isaiah, don't we? About 2,700 years ago, his words are just fresh today, aren't they? In us. And all that Jesus accomplished in fulfilling uh, the promises of God and the words of Isaiah 53, his servant, are in this bread and in this cup. And Paul said it this way to the Corinthians. He said, in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks to the Father for it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Let us partake together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we remember the body of Jesus. You prepared it for yourself to take upon the sins of the world, and you did it out of your great love. That he would bear the sins of his people, that we might have 
relationship with you, be reconciled to you, have peace with you again. We thank you so much for the body of Jesus. Amen. In like manner, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it. And when you do, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus and drink this together. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that it was your will to crush him because you loved us. And you knew he would come out of that crushing. And you knew that it would birth a people for you that were made righteous and could come and have relationship with you again. You loved us. You loved us all the way to death and the death of your son. Your steadfast love would not give up on us. And it never will give up on us. Your son has made it etched in history forever. Forever it is written. Forever it is written by your prophets that the servant has come. He loves us with his life unto death. He's won the victory. He divides the spoil with us. The riches he lavishes upon us. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We're blessed in you today. And we thank you, most high and living God, the same God of Isaiah. Take us into your throne room now and this week. Let us, just in moments of our day, help us to behold the servant. Be transformed in his presence. Moved by your steadfast love toward us. Help us to flourish in your righteousness and be a light to the nations. That's what Jesus is and that's what his people are. A light to all the nations, all the people around us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go and be a light to the nations and love one another.